ThoughtBot is thrilled to announce our own incubator launching this year. If you are a non-technical founding team with a business idea that involves a web or mobile app, we encourage you to apply for our eight-week program. We'll help you move forward with confidence in your team, your product vision, and a roadmap for getting you there. Learn more and apply at tbot.io slash incubator. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Stephanie Min, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Andrea Goulet. Hi, Andrea. Hello. Thanks for having me. So here on The Bike Shed, we like to start by sharing something new in our world. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and anything new going on for you? Yeah. So I have a background in strategic communications and then kind of made a windy journey over to software. And so for the past 13 years, I've been focused on modernizing legacy systems. And, you know, legacy is kind of a loose term. Something you write today can be legacy. But essentially, we kind of help modernize any kind of software, any language, any platform, any framework. And so over the course of doing that in the work that I did before I came to software, I had a very technical understanding of kind of empathy and communications and had just done a lot of that. And I just noticed how much that mattered in creating healthy and sustainable code bases. So now I'm kind of taking that experience and I've got a book contract called Empathy Driven Software Development. So I've been working on just diving into a lot of the really deep research. So that's been kind of my focus for the past two years. And it's been really surprising because there were things that were positioned as truths. And then it's like, wait a second, new neuroscience is completely upending everything. So it's been a fun learning journey. And I'm excited to share some of the things that I've learned over the years, especially in the past two years with this book. So that is the new thing with me. And it's uh, I was telling you before, it just feels like a constant new thing. Anybody who's written a book, it's it's the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> so, Yeah, that sounds tough, but also kind of exciting because you're learning so many new things that then kind of shape how you view the world, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And I think, you know, I really like diving into the details. And I think what started this was when my business partner, Scott, at the time, he really embodied kind of the stereotypical 2010 software developer, like down to the scruffy beard and dark rim glasses. And what I found incredibly interesting was he had this belief of I'm good with machines, but I'm bad with people. And he just had this like really deeply ingrained. On the flip side, I had this belief of, oh, I'm good with people, but I'm bad with machines. I'll never learn how to code. And I found that really interesting. And personally, I had to go through a journey because we went on, it was the first time either of us had ever been on a podcast. So this was about 10 years ago. And at the end of the podcast, you know, Scott was the only one on there. And he said, you know, the person asked about his origin story and, you know, about our company, Corgi Bytes. And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, Andrea is amazing. You know, she's our non-technical founder. And by that time, I had been coding next to him for like three years. And I was like, why the heck would you call me non-technical? Like, And I just felt this like, what is it that I have to do to prove it to you? Do I have to actually go get a CS degree? I know I'm self-taught, but does that mean that I'm not good enough? Like, what certificates do I need? Do I need to like sit down next to you? Do I need to change my lifestyle? Do I need to look like you? So I was really upset, you know, and just thinking through like, how dare you? How dare you label me as Mm non-technical? 
And Scott is very quiet and patient, great with people, I think, right? (laughs) And listened and said, I use the words that you use to describe yourself. When we were in a sales meeting right before that phone call, I paid attention to how you introduced yourself and I, I pretty much use the same words. So when you call yourself technical, I will too. That shattered my world. It shattered my identity because then it put the responsibility of belonging on me. I couldn't blame other people for my not feeling like I didn't belong. Like that journey has just been so profound. This is what I see a lot of times with empathy is that we have these kind of self-identities, but then we're afraid to like open up and share and we make these assumptions of other people. But at the same time, there's real world evidence. And so how do we interpret that? You know, in addition to this, Scott, like part of the reason I called myself non-technical was because I had all of the people I saw who were like me or had my background. That's the word that was used to describe someone like me. And when I would go to a conference, you know, I have a feminine presentation. This was 10 years ago. My very first conference was, you know, 300 software developers. And there were probably about 295 men. And I was one of five women in the room. And because I looked so different and because I stood out, the first question that anybody would ask me, and this was about 30 to 40% of introductions was, are you technical or non-technical? And I had to choose between this binary. And I was like, I don't know. Am I technical? Like, is running the CEO? Like, I code? Like, I don't know. But then I have this background. And so I would just default to no I guess I'm non-technical because that's what felt safe because that's what they assumed. And I just didn't know. And I didn't realize that I was then kind of building in this identity. And so then, you know, as part of trying to create kind of more of an inclusive organization, we did one of the unconscious bias surveys from Harvard. And what astonished me when I did that myself was that I didn't have a whole lot of bias. Like there was some, but the most profound bias was against women in the workplace. And it like stood out like big one. I was like, how is it that I can be someone who's like a fierce advocate, but then that's my own bias against people like me? What the heck is going on? So really exploring all of this. And I think Scott and I have had so many different conversations over the years. We actually ended up getting married. And so we have you know, a personal reason to figure a lot of this stuff out too. And when we start to have those conversations about who am I and what's important to me, then all of a sudden we can start creating better code. We can start working together better as a team. We can start advocating for our needs. Other people know what we need um, ahead of time, you know, and we're not operating out of defensiveness. We're operating out of collaboration and creativity. So the book and kind of everything is, is inspired by my background and kind of my lived experience, but then also seeing Scott and like his struggles too. Because he had been told, like, you're a geek, stay in the computers, like, stay in the code. You're not allowed to talk to the customers because you're bad at it. Like, and, and flat out was told that. So how do we overcome these, like, labels that people have put on us and then we've made part of our own identity? So, and which ones are useful and then which ones are not? Because sometimes labels can create a sense of community and affinity, right? And so how do we know And it's just, it's complicated, but the same thing, software is complicated. We can take skills like empathy and communication, we can look at them schematically and operationalize them when we look at them in kind of detail. So that's what I enjoy doing is like looking under the hood and figuring out how does all of this stuff work? (laughs) So Um, I did want to respond to a few things that I heard you say uh, when you were talking about going to a conference, you know, and feeling very much in the minority. 
I went to my first RailsConf in 2022 and I, my first RailsConf in person, and I was like shocked at the gender imbalance. And I, I feel like every time I use the women's restroom, I was like looking around and trying to make a connection with someone and like have a bit of a kinship and be like, oh yes, like you are here with me in this space. And then, you know, we would have a conversation and walk out together. And like that felt very meaningful because the rest of the space, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't finding my people in. So I feel that very hard. I think this is also a good time to transition into the idea of makers and menders, especially because we have been talking about labels. So you all talked about this distinction between the different types of work and software development. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we have greenfield work, and that is, you know, writing code from scratch, making all the decisions about how to set up an application, exploring a whole new domain that hasn't been codified yet, and that, you know, is one type of work. But there's also mender type work, which is working in existing applications, legacy code, refactoring, um, and dealing with the complexity of something that has stood the test of time but may or may not gotten a lot of investment or care and, you know, bringing that code base back to life, uh, if you will. Yeah. And when I first heard about that distinction, I was like, yes, like I am a mender, like this is what I like to do. But the more I thought about it, I started to also feel conflicted because I've felt pain doing that work as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Especially in the context of teams that I've been on when that work was not valued. And mm-hmm. I was doing maintenance work and fixing bugs and either specifically being assigned to do that work or just doing it because I knew it needed to be done and no one else was doing it. And that mm-hmm. you know, had caused me a lot of frustration before because I would look around and be on a team with mostly white men and be like, why aren't they picking up any of this work as well? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was thinking about how, you know, I both felt very seen by the acknowledgement that this is work and this is valid work and it's important work, but also mm-hmm. a little bit like confused because I'm like, how did I get here? Like, did I mm. pigeonhole myself into doing this work? Because the more I did it, yeah. the better I got at it, the more comfortable and to whatever degree enjoyed it. But at the same time, like, I'm not totally sure I was given the opportunity to do greenfield work earlier in my career that could have Mm. changed where my interests lie. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned this because I actually, like, I'm a maker, but yet I created this community and, like, kind of, like, am known for this thing. And I, I had a very similar experience, I think, to how do I exist as someone who's different in this kind of community? And I think Part of it is, you know, there's a great quote by George Box, who is a statistician, and he says, all models are wrong, some are useful, right? And I think that's kind of the whole idea with the maker-mender is that it is a signal to be like, hey, if you like fixing stuff, because there is so much shame, like that's what we were responding to. And Sky had the opposite problem of what you have experienced, where he was only allowed to work on greenfield work. Like they were like, no, you're a good developer, so we want you working on features. We won't let you fix the bugs. We won't let you do the work that you like doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he wanted to create Corgi Bytes because he's like, this work needs to be done. I am so personally passionate about this. And when we were having these conversations 13 years ago, you know, I was talking to him about 
you know, product market fit and stuff like that. And I was like, you like fixing software and there's a lot of software out there to be fixed. Like I just was very, very confused as to why this kind of existed. And we had been told flat out, you're never going to find anybody else like Scott. You're never going to be able to build a company around people who find a lot of joy in doing this work. And I think that this comes down to identity. And, and, and then, I mean, kind of the way that Legacy Code Rocks was built too, like a lot of the signaling that kind of we put out there and kind of the messaging and stuff, it really came from Scott's feeling of like, I want to find more people like me. So like being in the women's bathroom and like, how do I find more menders or like, how do I find people? Because we were walking through a Barnes and Noble and it was like, maker fest, maker everything. He's like, I don't have a community. There is nowhere for me to go to create, you know, kind of these meaningful connections, exactly like you were saying. Like, I have maybe two people in my network. And so, and then we were at a conference in 2015, we're at the large agile conference. And it was one of the first ones that I've been to that had a software craft track. And we met like 20 people who were really like, I just saw Scott light up in a way that I hadn't seen him light up because he like could geek out on this level that I hadn't seen him do before. And so when I asked, like, why, how do you guys stay in touch afterwards? And they're like, oh, no, we don't. We don't know how to build a community. It's like, well, okay, well, we can get that started. To your response of like, how do you operate kind of when it is presented as a binary? And it's like, am I this or am I this? This kind of gets down to the idea of like, identity-wise, is it a binary or is it a spectrum? I tend to think of it kind of like an introvert-extrovert spectrum, where it's like, there is no wrong or right right? And you can move in different places. And I think being able to explain the nuances of some of kind of the modeling around how we came up with this messaging, it can get lost a lot of times. So, but I'm with you, like how do, you know, and that's kind of something now where it's like, okay, maybe my role was to kind of just start this conversation, but then everybody's having these ideas, but there are people who like genuinely feel seen, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting because what I'm hearing is that when there is this dominant narrative of what a developer should be and should be good at and what they should do, kind of like what you were saying earlier about how hard it was for you to like claim that identity yourself, people who feel differently aren't seen, right? And and that's, I think, yeah. the problem. Um, and I'm very, very interested in the gender aspect of it because one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of my female developer friends do do more of that mending work. So when you talk about, you know, like feeling like there was no community out there, it just wasn't represented at the time, you know, mm -hmm. a decade ago for sure. And still even now, I think we're, you know, just starting to elevate those voices in that work. I, I wanted to share that at ThoughtBot, we have different teams for different business verticals. And so we do have like a rapid validation prototyping team. We mm -hmm. do have a Greenfield like MVP, like V1 product team. And then we also have a team, uh, Boost, the team that I'm on, that is 
um, more team augmentation, working with legacy code and existing systems. And it was not lost on me that Boost has the most women. <laughs> mm. Yeah, because you have the concept of like cognitive load and like mental load. Yes. Right. You know, women at home end up taking a lot more of kind of this invisible labor that's behind the scenes. Like you're picking the kids up from school or you're doing the laundry or all of these things that are just behind the scenes. And I know this was actually something. So when Scott and I also like got married, that's when I first became aware of this. And it was very similar. And it was, okay, how do I, you know, because Scott and I both like in our business and in our, you know, personal partnership, it we wanted it to be based on equity. Yep. And then also like, how do I show up, right? And for me, the hardest thing with that was letting go of control, right? Where it's like, it has to be the certain way. It's hard for me to comment kind of on the broader enterprise level. Because you know what I see at Cory Bites is we have gender parity. That's been pretty balanced over the course of you know kind of our and we're a small boutique company, so it's different. But then in the larger community of Legacy Code Rocks, it tends to be more male. There's actually fewer women in there, and I think too like there's this idea of testers and QA. Like I think that falls in there as well, and that's like heavily dominant. I think sometimes it's like, oh, and, and I think this kind of comes to the problem of it, like, is the way that we think about the work in general. Yes. Because, and this might be useful just to think about kind of like the way that it came about was, you know, makers and menders was, you know, we were putting together actually this talk about for this conference that we went to. And my background in marketing, I was trying to like wrap my brain around like, when is it appropriate for mending? And I had, you know, my marketing degree, it's like, oh, the product life cycle, Right. And Scott's retort was, it needs to be a circle. We're agile, so it, it needs to be a circle. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Because look, if you have maturity and then you have it, oh my gosh, it'll link back to innovation and then you can do new stuff. And so, you know, I think when we describe makers and menders, and this is true with any label, the idea in the kind of broader model is that makers and menders aren't necessarily distinct right? And your team should 1000%, everyone should be contributing. And if you only have one person who's doing this work, you're at a detriment, right? That's not healthy for your code base. Like this should be baked in. And the mender is more of like, this is where I get my joy. It's more of an opt-in. But I think that your observation about the invisible labor and how that gets translated to maintenance work is accurate. You know, a lot of times, like when Scott was describing his thing, it's like there's the movie Office Space, I might be dating myself, but like there's this guy Milton and it's like, just go to the basement, right? Like, you know, he was told maintenance is where good software careers go to die. <laughs> and so over the years, it's like, how do we celebrate this and make it more part of the maker work? And it's like similar to how introverts and extroverts, it's like we all work together and you need all of it, but there is an extrovert bias, right? And extroverts are seen more as like, oh, they have leadership traits and stuff. But increasingly, we're starting to see, no, actually, that's not the only way that you can be effective. So I think it's hard. And I think it does come down to belonging. And I think that there are also different cultural kind of impacts there. And it comes down to just a lot of different lived experiences. And I so appreciate you sharing your point of view. And I'm curious, like, what would help you feel more like you belong? Is it the work and the environment that you're in that's kind of contributing to this feeling? Or is it other things in general? Or 
Okay, so I did want to address real quick what you were saying about mental load and household labor, because I think I really only started thinking about this after I read a book called Equal Partners by Kate Mangino, where she talks about how to improve gender equality at home. And I loved that book so much. And I suddenly started to see it everywhere in life and obviously at work too. And that's kind of what really drove my thinking around this conversation. Maintenance work, that being like considered less skilled labor or like things that get offloaded to someone else. I think that really frustrates me because I just don't believe that's true. And and so to get back to what you were asking about, like what would make me feel more seen or valued? I think it's systemic, but I also think that organizations can make change, you know, within their cultures around incentives, especially when you are only promoted if you do greenfield work and write like thousands of lines of code, <laughs> that's what people will want to do. <laughs> yeah. And not even just promotions, but like, you know, who gets a kudos in Slack? Or like, when do you get positive encouragement? As a consultant, I've worked on, you know, different client teams that had different values. And that was when I really struggled to be in those environments. I have a really strong memory of working on a greenfield project, but you know, there was another male developer who was just like cranking out features and you know, doing all of this work and then demoing it to stakeholders. But then there was one feature that he had implemented but had faked the data. So he hadn't finished the backend part of it, but just used fake data to demo the user interface to stakeholders. And then he moved on to something else. And I was like, wait, this isn't done. <laughs> but at that point, you know, stakeholders thought it was done. You know, they thought that it was complete. They, you know, kind of gave him positive feedback for, for finishing it. Um, and then I had to come in and be like, like, this isn't done. Like someone needs to work on this. And that person ended up being me. And that was really frustrating because, you know, I was doing that behind the scenes work, like the under the hood work for something that had already been attributed to someone else. And yeah, I, I think about that a lot and what systems or what the environment was that led to that particular dynamic. Debugging errors can be a developer's worst nightmare, but it doesn't have to be. Airbrake is an award-winning, error-monitoring, performance, and deployment-tracking tool created by developers for developers that can actually help cut your debugging time in half. So why do developers love Airbrake? It has all of the information that web developers need to monitor their application, including error management, performance insights, and deploy tracking. Airbrake's debugging tool catches all of your project errors, intelligently groups them, and points you to issues in the code so you can quickly fix the bug before customers are impacted. In addition to stellar error monitoring, Airbrake's lightweight APM helps developers track the performance and availability of their application through metrics like HTTP requests, response times, error occurrences, and user satisfaction. Finally, Airbrake deploy tracking helps developers track trends, fix bad deploys, and improve code quality. Since 2008, Airbrake has been a staple in the Ruby community and has grown to cover all major programming languages. Airbrake seamlessly integrates with your favorite apps to include modern features like single sign-on and SDK-based installation. From testing to production, Airbrake notifiers have your back. Your time is valuable, 
So why waste it combing through logs, waiting for user reports, or retrofitting other tools to monitor your application? You literally have nothing to lose. Head on over to airbrake.io slash bikeshed to create your free developer account today. Do you have any advice for leaders who want to make sure there's more equity for people who like to do mending and legacy code work? Yeah, absolutely. I, I am so grateful for your questions and your perspective because this is not something that's talked about a lot and is so important. I wrote an article for First Round Review. This was in like 2016 or 2017. And it was called Forget Technical Debt, Here's How to Build Technical Wealth. And so if you want to link to it in the show notes, it's a really long article and that goes into some of the specifics around it, but it's meant for CEOs, right? It really is meant for CEOs. And I do think that you're right. Some of it is that we have lionized this culture of making, right? And the work that is more visible. And it's like, oh, okay, great. Here's all the visual design stuff. That's fantastic. You know, but then recognizing there's a lot of stuff that's behind the scenes too, so in terms of leaders, I think some of it is you have to think about long-term thinking instead of just the short-term, right? Don't just chase the new shiny. Also, you need to be really aware of what your return on investment is because the developers that are working on maintaining and making sure that your mission-critical systems don't fail, those are the ones that have the highest value in your organization. Because if that system goes down, your company makes money. Greenfield work, yes, it's very, and I'm not downplaying greenfield work for sure. Like I'm definitely, like I love doing that stuff. I love doing the generating phase. And at the same time, if we only look towards kind of more the future bias, there's a great book that we were featured in called The Innovation Delusion that talks about this more in general. But if we only look at the visible work that's coming, you know, then we forget what's important now. You know, so for leaders, it's if you're running a software company, know where your mission critical systems are and recognize the importance of maintaining them. That's the very first step. The second step is to recognize the complexities of a situation, like to think about things in terms of complex systems instead of complicated systems. And I'll describe this, the difference. So when I came to software, I had been working in the creative field, like in advertising and branding and copywriting and all that. And it was, we got inputs, we kind of ran it through this process, and then we delivered, right? And we did a demo and all of that stuff. It was, when is the timeline? When is it done? Right? Big air quotes. You know, and we were pretty predictably able to deliver on our delivery date. Sometimes things would go wrong, but we kind of had a sense because we had done this same pattern over and over again. You don't get that in legacy code. Because the variables are so immense that you cannot predict in the same way. You have to adopt the new strategy for how do you measure effectiveness. And the idea of measuring, you know, software productivity in terms of new features or lines of code, like that's something that goes all the way back to Dijkstra, right, in the like 1970s around, is that the right way? Well, a lot of people who code are like, no, that's not. This is a debate that goes back to the earliest days of computing, but I think that the companies that are able to build resilient systems have a competitive advantage. If a leader wants to look at their systems, whether that is a social system and the people in their organization or whether or not it's their software, if you look at it from like a systems thinking, like there are interactions that I need to pay attention to, not just process, that is super key as well. 
And then the last one is to recognize like one of our core values is communication is just as important as code. I would be remiss to say that like to neglect empathy and communication in part of this, but that really is like so important because like it, when we position things in terms of, and you know, I don't know as much about ThoughtBot and kind of the overall strategy, but kind of an anti-pattern I have seen just in general in organizational behavior is that when you structure teams kind of functionally and silo them, you're not getting that diversity of thought. So the way that we approach it is like put a mender on a maker team, <laughs> right? Because they're going to have a different perspective. And then you can work together to get things out the door faster and value each other's perspectives and recognize strengths and shadows. So for me, like as a maker, I'm like, I've got a huge optimism bias and we can go through all this stuff. And for Scott, it's like he struggles to know when he's done. Like for me, I'm like, cool, we're 80% done. I got it. We're good to go. And for Scott, he'll work on something like, and, and then it's like, I have to stop him. So recognizing that we help each other, that kind of thought diversity and experience diversity, that goes across so many different vectors, not just makers and menders. But I think to me, it's about reframing value so that you're not just thinking about what it is right now in this moment. And I think that when, you know, a lot of this comes down to investor strategy too, because if you've got an investor that you're trying to appease and they're just trying to make short-term, you know, monetary gains, it's much harder to think in terms of long-term. Really, and, and I think it's developers understanding business, business understanding the struggles of developers and like you know, how they need lots of focus time and like how estimating is really freaking hard and why, you know, if you demand something, it's going to be, you know, probably not right. And then coming up with frameworks together where how can I describe this in a way? So to me, it really is about empathy and communication at the end of the day when we're talking about interactions and how do we operationalize it. Yeah. I like what you said about reframing value because I do believe that it starts from the top. When you value sustainability, um, my co-host Joelle had a, an episode about sustainability as a value in software development, but then that changes, like I mentioned before, the incentive structures, right? And who gets rewarded for what type of work. And I also think that, you know, it's not only diverse types of people who like doing different types of work, but there is value in doing both. And I know we talked about it being a spectrum earlier, but I strongly believe that doing the legacy code work and experiencing, you know, what it's like to try to change a system that you are like, I have no idea why this decision was made or like, why is the code like this? That will help inform you if you do do greenfield work. Those are really important skills, I think, to bring to that other type of work as well, because then you're thinking about, okay, like, you know, how can I make decisions that will help the developers down the line when I'm like no longer on this project. Exactly. Which is a form of empathy. <laughs> yeah, it is a form of empathy. Exactly. And the reverse is also true too. I was thinking about like, okay, like how can, you know, working in Greenfield code help inform working with legacy code? And I, I was like, oh, you have so much energy when the world is like completely open to you and you can make whatever, you know, decisions to like deliver value. And I've really struggled working in legacy code, feeling like I don't have any options and that I have to, you know, mm. repeat a pattern that's already been set or that like, I'm just kind of stuck with what I've been given. But I, I think that there is some value in 
injecting more of that agency into working with legacy code as well. Well, and I think too, like, I think you hit it on the head because like I said, with the mental load at home, it was like, I had to be okay with things failing where it's like, it wasn't exactly the way I would do it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had to be okay with that, right? Like, oh, the dishes aren't put in the dishwasher exactly the same way I would do it, not going behind it and like, just, okay, it's, it's not perfect. That's, it's going to be okay, right? And I think that's kind of what we experience too is this idea of we have to figure out how we work together in a way that is sustainable. And I think that, you know, similar to my experience with the technical, non-technical piece, like there is an onus. And now granted, I want to be very careful here to not, like there is trauma and there is absolutely horrific discrimination and abuse. And that is not what I'm talking about here in terms of power dynamics, right? I am talking more about like self-identity and self-expression. And I think that if you are in a community like makers and menders, you know, yeah, that, you know, we're less represented, that there is a little bit of an onus, right? The technical, non-technical, like the onus of understanding what non-technical means and where I can push back is really important work for me to do. Because what I was surprised with was everyone there, like when I started asking, like, so my response ended up being, help me understand, why did you ask that question? And like, I took ownership of the narrative and it was like, oh, well, what I found was that most of the people were like, if you're a recruiter, I don't want to waste your time with a bunch of stuff that you don't want to talk about. And then being able to say, oh, okay, I can see that. And you assumed I was a recruiter because of the way I looked. And I understand the intention here. Next time, if I'm at a software conference, assume that I know how to code and assume that I'm here for a reason. And a great opening question is, what brought you here? Like, I'm like, oh, okay, when we ask a close-ended question, we position things as a binary, like, are you technical or non-technical? That creates like a lot of cognitive dissonance and it's hard. But if I open it up and say, what brought you here, then I can create my own narrative. There is an aspect of kind of setting boundaries and pushing back a little bit, like you said, agency. And that can be really hard because it gets at the core of who you are. And then you have to really explore it. And what I've found, at least, is in the majority, there have been exceptions, but in the majority of the male-dominated groups that I've been in in my career in software, the majority are very welcoming and want me to be there. But I feel inadequate and it's more imposter syndrome than I think it is people being discriminatory. Learning about the differences between that and like, where is my responsibility and where is your responsibility in this? That's a tough tension to play. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's really important that we're having a conversation like this. I think Mm -hmm. what you're getting at is just the harm of the default assumption that is chronic, (laughs) at least, you know, for me sometimes. And you mentioned earlier the history of computing a little bit. And I was really excited about that because I did a little bit of digging and learned about women's history in computing and how, you know, after World War II, programming, you know, there were so many women. In fact, I think like by 1960, like more than one in four programmers were women and where they were working on mission critical work, like for NASA, for, you know, during World War II, you know, for code breaking. And I read that at the time that work was deemed boring and tedious. And that's why men didn't want to do it. They wanted to work Mm -hmm. on hardware, which was what was like the cool, creative, interesting 
work and the computing work was, you know, just like second class. That's changed. But in some ways, I'm like thinking about, okay, like, where are we now? And to what degree are we kind of continuing this legacy? And how can we evolve or, you know, move beyond it? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And like in the some of the research for the book, you know, one of the things I learned is like a lot of people know the name John von Neumann, right? Like he created the von Neumann architecture that like is the foundation of all the hardware that kind of most of us use today. And the very first kind of general purpose digital computer, ENIAC, all, I think it was eight of the people who were programmers for that were women. That team was led by John von Neumann's wife, Clara. And like, you never hear about Clara, right? Like you have to go digging for that. And the Smithsonian actually just about eight, 10 years ago did a big like anniversary and then realized like none of those women were invited to the press conferences. They were not invited, right? And so there is kind of this like similar to generational wealth. It's the thing that gets passed down. Like if you're in the rooms in the early days, you know, there was a quote by um, John Bacchus who created Fortran and the bacchus Nord principle, where he talked about programming in the 1950s, he has an essay and he was like, yeah, I mean, an idea was anybody who claims it and we never cited our sources. And so it was whoever had the biggest ego was the one who got credit. And everyone's like, great, you're a hero. And so I think that's kind of the beginning of it. And so if you weren't invited into the room, because in the 1950s, in addition to gender, there was legislation that prevented, <laughs> we weren't even allowed to use the same bathrooms. You had white bathrooms and black bathrooms. So you had like very serious barriers for many different people getting into that room. And I think that gets to the idea of intersectionality as well. So the more barriers that you had, the harder it was going to be. And so then you get the stereotypes, right? And then you get the media who promotes the stereotypes. And so that's what happened to me. So I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And just every movie I watched, every TV show, it portrayed somebody who was, quote, good with computers in a very specific way. I didn't see myself in it. So I was like, oh, I'm not there. But then like when I talked to Scott, he's like, oh, I never saw that. I never saw the discrimination. I just saw this stuff. That's part of it is that if you were in that position where discrimination or you know difficulties or stereotypes have been invisible to you, the onus is on you to learn and to listen. If you are in a situation where you feel like you have been in the minority, the onus is on you to find ways to become more empowered. And a lot of times that is setting boundaries. It's advocating for yourself. It's recognizing your self-worth. And those are all things that are really hard. And, you know, saying, hey, if we want to be sustainable, everyone needs to contribute. I'm happy to train everyone, but this is not going to work. And being able to frame it, too, in terms of value, like why? You know, why is it a benefit for kind of everyone building that empathy? And you're right. I mean, there are absolutely cultures where, who was it? I think it was Edward Demings, and he said, you know, a single person is powerless in the face of a bad system. And so if you're in a system that isn't going to work, you know, recognizing that and can you move into a different system or can you change it from within? And those are all different questions that you've got to ask based on your own fortitude, your own interests, you know, your own resources, um, your own situation. There is no easy question, but it's just, it's always work. And no matter who you are, it's always work. 
right? Yeah, yeah. I joined as co-host of this podcast just a few months ago, and I, you know, had to do a lot of reflecting on what I wanted to get out of it and what my goals were, and that's why I'm really excited to have you on here and, you know, to be using this platform to talk about things that are important to me and things that I think that more people should know about or think about. Uh, So before we wrap up, Andrea, do you have anything else you want to say? I want to reinforce that if you feel like joy from mending, it's awesome. And there are communities like LegacyCode.rocks. We have MenderCon and it's a celebration of software maintenance. So it can be really great. Like we have a virtual meetup every Wednesday and there's a kind of core group of people who come and they're like, it's like therapy because there are a lot of people who are in your situation where it's like, I am the only person on my team who cares about automated tests and I have no idea. Like, and just having people who kind of share in that struggle, it can be really helpful. So finding your community. And then I think just like software maintenance is, is really, really critical and really important. And I think we see it Like we're seeing it in the news every day in terms of these larger systems going down. Just recently, there was the, you know, Southwest Airlines and all of these flights got canceled, right? The maintenance work is so, so valuable. If you feel like a mender and you feel like that fits your identity, just know that there is a lot of worth in the work that you are doing, an immense amount of worth in the work that you are doing. And to continue to advocate for that. If you are a maker, yes, there is absolutely worth in the work you're doing, but learn about menders, right? Learn how to work together. And if you are a leader of an organization, recognize that all of these different perspectives can work together and again, reframe the value. So I am so grateful that you framed the conversation this way. It's so important. I'm very, very grateful to hear from you and your point of view. And I hope that you continue to push the narrative like this because it's really, it's really important. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show has been produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Joel Ken on Twitter. Or reach both of us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at thoughtbot.com.